And this happened 10 minutes ago? Yeah. And where is everybody now? Two of them are still in the cooler. One of them looks like he's dead. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Gary Robinson called 911 moments after being shot in the chest the morning of May 9th, 1992. And the call taker couldn't believe what she was hearing. A pair of teenage robbers tied up four Taco Bell employees and attempted to execute all of them. Three survived. That shocking story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss last week's death sentence of a sex offender who was convicted of strangling an eight-year-old girl five years ago in Jacksonville. Donald Smith lured the victim away from her mother while they were shopping together at Walmart. After he raped and killed the girl, Smith left her body in a creek bed. Later, I'll profile the slaying of 17-year-old Michelle Van Ness, who was shot in the head 26 years ago by Jeffrey Farina, who at the time was 16 years old. He and his older brother, Anthony Farina, robbed a Taco Bell in Daytona Beach. In an effort to eliminate witnesses, the younger Farina shot three employees and then stabbed a fourth. My special guest for that segment will be former state attorney John Tanner and Daytona Beach News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez. Coming up, the story of last week's death sentence in Jacksonville. Rain Periwinkle lost her daughter on June 21st, 2013, while she was out shopping. Sexual predator Donald James Smith spotted Rain inside a Dollar General earlier that night. He earned her trust right away. She told him she was unable to afford a new dress for her daughter. Smith told Rain that his wife had a $150 gift card to Walmart, and he'd like her to have it instead. He drove Rain and her three children to the Walmart store on Lem Turner Road and acted as though he was waiting for his wife. He didn't have a wife. During the ruse, he walked out of the store with Rain's eight-year-old girl, Cherish, promising her mother that he was taking her to McDonald's for some Happy Meals. Smith kidnapped the girl. The following morning, Cherish was found wedged under a fallen tree in a creek bed several miles from the store. Cherish had been raped and strangled. The Florida Times Union reported that Smith had only been out of prison for 21 days when he killed the girl. Barring an overturned sentence, Smith is guaranteed to spend the rest of his days behind bars. On Wednesday, the 61-year-old Smith was sentenced to death. It will never be over, but this is my fight now for children. That was Rain talking to News 4 Jax outside the courtroom moments after Smith's sentencing hearing was adjourned. Jurors recommended death for Smith in February. Two of those jurors attended Wednesday's sentencing, according to the Times Union. One of those jurors hugged Rain outside the courtroom. Both of them 
had tears in their eyes. Trial jurors were subjected to graphic photographs and listened to detailed testimony from forensic specialists who described the kind of sexual violence the eight-year-old victim suffered during the last moments of her life. The Times Union reported that jurors wept throughout the trial, and at least one spent much of one day of testimony glaring at the defendant. When it came time for the 12 jurors to deliberate on a recommended sentence, it took them two hours to unanimously vote for death. Smith's defense team argued that Smith had brain damage, which affected his impulse control. Jurors rejected that argument. Smith's status as a sex offender dates back to August 1977, when he was arrested on a charge of lewd and lascivious assault against a child younger than 16. He was sentenced to five years for that charge. He has been in and out of prison numerous times since then. In 1992, he was arrested on account of attempted kidnapping and other charges. He was convicted and sentenced to six years in prison. The victim in that case, who was now 36 years old, testified during the sentencing phase at Smith's trial in February. The woman, who was 13 when she first encountered Smith, tearfully described how she was approached by Smith while she was walking to a friend's house. Smith was driving a van. He started asking the girl questions, including where she went to school. The girl instinctively knew the stranger was dangerous. Smith ordered the girl into the van, but she ran away. She made it to a school playground where she hid inside the plastic tube of a slide and then prayed that Smith would never find her. She remembered hearing him say the words, I know you are in there, you little I'm coming to find you. Smith drove away. But the girl said she saw him another time later. She spotted him lurking outside her house. While on the witness stand, the woman described locking eyes with him on that day 26 years ago. She said, quote, He looked at me like he was going to kill me. I will never forget his face. I knew he was going to hurt me. The girl's family called police and gave them the tag number on the van. That's how police tracked him down and arrested him. Smith's trial earlier this year was the first death penalty trial for Melissa Nelson, who was elected the state attorney for the 4th Judicial Circuit in 2016. Nelson instituted a review panel to go over all first-degree murder cases to determine whether death is the most appropriate sentence. Nelson told the Times Union that in this case, there was never any doubt that death would be pursued. She said, quote, Donald Smith was a dangerous pedophiliac psychopath. What he did to Cherish was horrific. Smith was sentenced to death for his first-degree murder charge. He received life sentences for his kidnapping and rape charges. Duval County Circuit Judge Mallory Cooper sentenced Smith. Donald Smith, you have not only forfeited your right to live among us, but under the laws of the state of Florida, you have forfeited your right to life at all. After the hearing, Rain told the Times Union, quote, I want him to burn in hell. Assistant State Attorney Mark Khalil, who along with Nelson prosecuted the case, 
told reporters Wednesday that death sentences never warrant a celebratory reaction, even for those who worked so hard to seek it, and those like Rain who waited impatiently for it. While we believe justice was served, I don't think it's time for celebration, Uh, maybe reflection and hopefully uh, give some peace to Rain and the people who have been affected by this case. Smith's case will automatically be appealed to the Florida Supreme Court. He was transferred Thursday to Florida State Prison in Rayford. Coming up, the story of the Taco Bell robbery and murder in Daytona Beach that took place 26 years ago this Wednesday. Gary Robinson, a 19-year-old employee at Taco Bell, called a 911 operator moments after being shot in the chest and watching helplessly as two of his co-workers were shot and another was stabbed in the head and the back. 16-year-old Jeffrey Farina. Okay, they were white nails? White nails. One of them had a tattoo on his right shoulder with a burning heart. Is someone on their way? They're on their way. I need to give you a description. One tall, dark-haired, had a burning heart on his right, on his right shoulder. Tattoo. Have a burning heart? Yeah, it was a heart and it was on fire on top. And a mustache and like a scruffy beard, not really a whole beard, just like not shaven. Robinson also described Farina's 18-year-old brother, Anthony Farina. Okay, what does this other guy look like? He was blonde. He was unshaven also. He was on the tall side. Okay, did you see any vehicles? No. Okay, what type of weapons did they have? A small revolver. A third suspect, John Henderson, who was 23 at the time, served as a lookout and getaway driver. Daytona Beach police responded to the call. They found Robinson with a gunshot wound to his right upper chest. Another victim, 16-year-old Derek Mason, had a gunshot wound to his face above the upper lip on his right side. A third victim, 17-year-old Michelle Van Ness, had been shot in the right side of her head. 
The fourth victim, 18-year-old Kimberly Gordon, suffered two stab wounds, one to the back of her head and one to her back. Based on the original police report, Jeffrey and Anthony Farina entered the Taco Bell at 1408 Bevel Road around 2 a.m., shortly after it had closed. They got inside after two of the employees, Mason and Van Ness, had walked outside to dump out the trash. The two teens saw a brown station wagon parked next to the trash bin and got spooked, so they turned around and headed back to the restaurant. That's when they were approached by Jeffrey and Anthony Farina, who were armed with a revolver and a knife. Mason would later testify that he felt the barrel of a revolver pressed against his back. The robbers wore surgical gloves and also had clothesline rope with them. The two employees were followed into the store by the Farino brothers, who held all four employees at gunpoint. Anthony Farina asked the victims whether any of them would like a cigarette. Kimberly Gordon, the older of the two female victims, accepted the offer. She hoped it would calm her. Anthony Farina lit the cigarette and then took it out of his mouth and placed it in between Gordon's lips. Before Gordon could finish smoking the cigarette, she and the others were herded into the walk-in freezer, where Jeffrey Farina tied their wrists with the clothesline. Gordon, who was the shift manager, was the one who had given the Farina brothers access to the safe so they could steal the money. She told the News Journal that the Farina brothers told them they were only going to put them in the walk-in freezer as a precaution. They didn't want them calling the police so soon after they left. They kept assuring them they would be safe. Then the brothers said they needed to take one final precaution. That's when the gunfire started. Here is News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez. I mean, you really just have to say it was very heinous. I mean, there was no reason for them to uh, kill them. I mean, they wanted to rob the place. Okay, that's bad enough. But to go and try to kill four people, snuff out their lives. I think uh, if I remember some of the testimony from one of the victims, she was saying that she thought that they were, they indicated to her that they were, you know, going to be okay, that they just wanted the money. They were going to leave them in the cooler. And then they came back and tried to kill all four of them. That's what one of them said, that they felt, you know, that they would, you know, cooperate and everything will be okay. John Tanner was the state attorney for the 7th Judicial Circuit at the time. Here he is describing the crimes committed that night by the Farina brothers. Jeffrey and and Anthony were, of course, talking to them. And they said, you know, no one's going to get hurt, that type of thing, and just cooperate with us. They tied all four of the victims' hands and, uh, and left their legs free so they could walk back into the cooler where they intended to murder them. Uh, of course, they were assured they were just putting them back in there so they, could get, so they the, the killers, could get away and that uh, and no one was going to be hurt. You know, they were hoping and, and believing that they were not going to be injured as long as they didn't fight or resist. Well, the truth is, these, these two, I'm sure these two brothers from the start had planned on killing them. In fact, afterwards, the older one said, uh, you know, we should have cut their throats as well. Uh, they just didn't intend to leave any witnesses at all, and that's the reason there was no attempt to wear masks. 
Robinson was shot first, then Mason, and then Van Ness. Jeffrey Farina had intended to shoot all four, but when he aimed the gun at Gordon and pulled the trigger a fourth time, the gun didn't go off. He pulled the trigger again, and it still didn't fire. So his older brother handed him a knife, and Jeffrey Farina used that on Gordon. Anthony Farina did more than just hand over the weapon. He played an active role in the attempted murder on Gordon. Yeah, he basically held Kimberly's head so she couldn't struggle while his brother jammed the knife in his in his in her back of her head trying to kill her and then stabbed her in the back. And he's the one that said, you know, we should have cut all their throats. Gordon told the News Journal from her hospital bed a week after the attack that she and the others were pleading with the Farina brothers not to kill them. But their attackers remained silent and kept carrying out the attack. Anthony Farina even had a smirk on his face. After Gordon felt the knife enter her back, the next thing she remembered was waking up in the ICU. Tanner prosecuted a lot of notorious criminals during his 18 years as the 7th Judicial Circuit's top prosecutor. Eileen Warnos, Costa Fotopoulos, Troy Victorino, and others. He also had a well-documented interaction with serial killer Ted Bundy. In spite of the number of high-profile cases he's linked to, the Taco Bell robbery still stands out to him as among the worst he's handled. These boys, one of them directly and the other one vicariously, knew and worked with these uh, young people that were the targets of murder and with uh, virtually no regard for pain or terror or for the life of, of these other young people who were, you know, in the same age range as the two killers to just go in and and uh, and kill them like they're, uh, you know, like they're, they're chickens in a chicken coop. Just walk in and just start killing people one at a time while the others watched. There's, there's an added horror to that. It is said that, that uh, Anthony had a grin on his face when all this was going on and, and that uh, Jeffrey was just deadpan. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen it on death row. Uh, killer's eyes are often dead. There's no light in there. And to face that and to know it's coming, I, I think, is, is beyond most people's capacity. Police said after Jeffrey and Anthony were done inside the store, they made off with the stolen cash and then ran out the back, where Henderson was waiting for them in the car with the engine running. Initially, it was reported that the robbers got away with $200. Police reports show they stole $890. Eventually, it was learned they stole more than $2,100. When police showed up to the restaurant, they found Robinson and Mason outside the cooler. The two female victims, Gordon and Van Ness, were still unconscious and bound inside. All four victims were transported to Halifax Health Medical Center. Two of them, Van Ness and Robinson, the 911 caller, were listed in critical condition. The other two were in serious condition. Ten hours after the attack, the Farina brothers and their accomplice were arrested at a Holly Hill gas station. Anthony Farina had been an employee at the Taco Bell he robbed. He had been fired after failing to show up for work. Mason had recognized him, and he identified him to police. 
Detectives started calling other employees at Taco Bell who weren't working that night and invited them in for interviews. Police were hoping one of them could help them track down Anthony Farina. One of those employees had heard Anthony Farina and his brother were staying in motels in the Daytona Beach area, so she took it upon herself to start calling some of them. She found out they were registered at Raleigh's Court Motel on Ridgewood Avenue in neighboring Holly Hill. She and her sister drove by and noticed Anthony Farina's vehicle. The sisters drove to the Shell station next door to use the payphone to call police. While one was on the phone, the other saw the vehicle pull into the gas station. Anthony Farina got out and pumped some gas. Then he walked into the store and came face to face with his ex-co-worker. He casually said to her, what's up? And acted like nothing was wrong. But that employee later told the news journal that she could tell Anthony Farina had done something serious. She could tell that by looking into his eyes. Moments later, Daytona Beach and Holly Hill police swarmed the vehicle, and all three suspects were arrested. The charges against all three were amended one day later from attempted murder to murder. Michelle Van Ness died while at the hospital. She had lived with the assistance of life support for another 36 hours after being shot in the head. She never regained consciousness. Van Ness was weeks away from finishing her junior year at Warner Christian Academy. She had dreams of becoming a pediatrician. Police said her parents were at their daughter's side when she died. News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez told me Van Ness was working an extra shift the morning she was shot. Michelle Van Ness wasn't even supposed to be working that night. She was taking the place of another worker who had asked her to fill in for her. So she was there basically doing a, a, a friend a favor, a co-worker, helping out a co-worker, and she ends up losing her life. The police reports showed that both Farina brothers provided admission statements to police. They wanted to rob the restaurant for the money. The reason they gave for shooting and stabbing the victims was to eliminate them as witnesses. The decision was made right away by Tanner to charge Jeffrey Farina as an adult. He also decided to pursue the death penalty against all three suspects. Tanner told me how those decisions came about. It's within the discretion of the state attorney, and I always, uh, as the elected state attorney, felt it was my responsibility to make the ultimate decision, but I, I staffed it, always staffed all of potential death penalty cases with key staff members, experienced prosecutors and investigators on my team. You know, in the state attorney's office, we have four counties of, of, of prosecutors and, and investigators, and, and after the staffing, of course, in this case, it was unanimous uh, on the staffing that we seek the death penalty against all three of of the murderers and uh, of course I consider the lookout a murderer as well. John Henderson, the Farina brothers accomplice, did not want to stand trial and he certainly didn't want a death sentence hanging over his head. His attorney went to work on a plea bargain. Tanner was open to it. It, The the defense lawyer had come up to me early on and, and said that he really wants to cooperate. He said, you know, he... Uh, he, uh, meaning uh, the lookout, did not really 
know they're going to kill people. I don't know if that's true or not. But in any event, that he wanted to plead guilty and that he he was going to plead guilty and he would testify at the trial. And I made the decision to waive the death penalty in that case in return for that. Uh, you know, there's no such thing as a sure conviction in any case until the jury says guilty. And I wanted to make certain that uh, the Farina brothers did not escape justice. Henderson agreed to accept a sentence of life in prison. It didn't take long for the trial to get underway. Both brothers were tried together. Jury selection began six months to the day of the fatal robbery. Jurors listened to the testimony of one of Jeff Farina's fellow inmates. He told jurors that the younger Farina brother told him that the reason he shot three people and stabbed another while he robbed a Taco Bell was because he was bored. Jurors also listened to taped conversations between the two brothers. They laughed about what they did and critiqued each other as they went over how they robbed the store. Jeff Farina said they should have worn stockings over their heads. Anthony Farina said they should have been more thorough and made sure to kill all four victims. The brothers were being recorded while they were sitting in the back of a patrol car. Jurors deliberated for three and a half hours and came back with guilty verdicts. Up until a couple years ago, Florida jurors only needed a majority vote to recommend death. The trial jurors voted 7-5 to five in favor of death for Anthony Farina. They voted 9-3 to three in favor of death for Jeffrey Farina. After the brothers were formally sentenced to death by the judge, the three survivors, as well as the family of murdered victim Michelle Van Ness, all probably believed they'd never have to enter a courtroom again and see the Farina brothers. They were wrong. Here is Frank Fernandez. Anthony Farina's death sentence was struck down twice. The first time the Supreme Court ruled that a, a juror that was qualified had been improperly excluded. And then he was sentenced to death again, and that was overturned because former state attorney, the, the appeals court, the federal appeals court in Atlanta said that former state attorney John Tanner, who uh, tried the case, made improper biblical references during the sentencing hearing. And so they overturned that sentence. And after that, the uh, prosecutors reached a deal with An Anthony Farina. If he agreed to life in prison, they would not seek the death penalty again against him. The first overturned death sentence was in April 1996, three and a half years after the trial. That was when the Florida Supreme Court overturned the death sentences on the basis that a prospective juror with mixed feelings about the death penalty was improperly excused. So the same case was tried again in April 1998. The three surviving victims had to testify again. Same with Van Ness's family. Jurors convicted them both and once again recommended a death sentence. This time, they were unanimous in that recommendation for both Jeffrey and Anthony Farina. Derek Mason, one of the survivors, told the News Journal after the second trial that the brothers, six years after the robbery, looked the same. They had the same evil stares as he remembered. The judge once again followed through with the juror's recommendation and sentenced both brothers to death. Michelle Van Ness's father, Larry, had this to say 
after sitting through a second trial. Think about your daughter being bound for 45 minutes and pleading for her life. That's never easy to listen to. The facts speak for themselves. We've been here twice and had our hearts torn out twice. During the trial, both brothers said they had become born-again Christians while on death row. Both of them also apologized to the Van Ness family. Twenty-six months later came another development. The Florida Supreme Court ruled 5-2 that executing juveniles was cruel and unusual punishment. That ruling angered Van Ness's parents. It also angered Tanner. To this day, he still has a lot to say about it. Absolutely. I think he, I think the Supreme Court decision didn't hold that people like cold-blooded killers uh, with premeditated design and multiple victims in, in mind and multiple attempts, including, you know, he, he, he stabbed in the back of the head Kimberly Gordon. Stabbed her in the back of the head, I think, twice. Stabbed her in the back as well. Uh, while while his brother, uh, Anthony, held her head so she couldn't get away while she's tied up. Uh, the fact he's 16 years old, uh, in my opinion, doesn't make him any less culpable. Uh, many soldiers and many, many soldiers in many countries, and even even in our country in World War II, and I'm sure in, in Vietnam and Korea, had 16-year-old soldiers, not by design sometimes, but uh, many young men have, have served in the military at that age, and they're young men. They're not children. And to treat them as children, especially in the face of that type of crime, I, I don't think is in the interest of justice. And I don't think it, it serves any good purpose except to give that person life when basically our culture and society determines that they don't deserve any further life. In 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court gave a similar ruling making it unconstitutional to execute juvenile offenders, which overturned statutes in 25 states. So Jeffrey Farina was moved out of death row, but Anthony Farina remained there. In late 2003, an appeals hearing was held in Daytona Beach. Anthony Farina had petitioned the court to have his sentence reduced to life. The ruling came in April 2004. The judge upheld the death sentence. Anthony Farina continued to fight, and in July 2006, the Florida Supreme Court mulled whether to reduce Farina's death sentence. The justices upheld it, but they were critical of Tanner's decision to use biblical verses while recommending death during the retrials in 1998. Chief Justice Fred Lewis said at the time, quote, The prosecutor should have refrained from this type of conduct. However, this behavior falls short of fundamental error. Anthony Farina spent another seven and a half years on death row. In January 2014, a federal appeals court in Atlanta threw out the death sentence. The reason? Tanner's biblical references. That decision infuriated Tanner. As Tanner remembers it, the defense attorney called in an evangelical preacher who ran a prison ministry. 
While on the stand, the preacher brought up the story of Jesus on the cross being flanked by two others who were being crucified. One of the men asked Jesus for forgiveness, and it was granted. Tanner pointed out during his cross-examination that the criminal was forgiven, but not spared, and asked the witness to confirm whether that's how he remembered it when he last read it in the Bible. Tanner didn't think Anthony Farina's death sentence should have been overturned based on that line of questioning. He pointed out that it was the defense that brought out that witness. In his mind, he was simply asking a legitimate follow-up question. Yeah, I, I was surprised and, and, uh, and of course, disappointed. I, I, I hate to think and, and see a case where, because of something I said or did, whether, whether, whether the court was, in my opinion, right or wrong, it doesn't make much difference. Still, if I hadn't said it, then, then perhaps it would have been set aside. But, you know, he, he the witness, was, was going basically to the Bible about the grace and the forgiveness of God. And I simply said, yeah, and Jesus forgave the one beside him. And uh, said he was going to go to heaven, in effect. But he didn't get him off the cross, did he? <laughs> you know? And so, anyway, I thought it was a legitimate question. I still do. The 11th Circuit ruling stated, quote, While elevating his own station as divinely ordained authority, the prosecutor made clear that the death penalty was the sole acceptable punishment under divine law, noting how Christ himself refused to grant a felon forgiveness from the death penalty. By the time that ruling came down, Tanner was six years out of office. In an interview with Frank Fernandez one day after the ruling, Tanner pulled no punches criticizing the Federal Appeals quote. He told Fernandez, quote, They are political appointees. They are appointed in part because of their social political views and not necessarily their intellect. I don't mean to be disrespectful. That's just a fact. Instead of facing a third sentencing, Tanner's successor, State Attorney R.J. Larizza, decided not to pursue the death penalty again. In April 2017, Anthony Farina was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. It appears now that Anthony Farina will never have to appear before a Volusia County Circuit judge again. The same can't be said about his brother. And then another subsequent ruling by the Supreme Court said that you couldn't sentence a minor to life imprisonment without uh, some periodic special review of the sentence. He, he, the minors were entitled to a uh, special sentencing hearing, and then even if they were sentenced to life, then they periodically would receive reviews of that sentence. Jeffrey Farina's last review was held in March 2017. Once again, survivors testified and Van Ness's parents testified. His four life sentences for killing Van Ness and attempting to kill Robinson, Mason, and Gordon remained intact. The judge found no reason to overturn them. Jeffrey Farina may request another review in 2027. Tanner who has shown he's not morally opposed to the death penalty, does have a problem in the way Florida practices it. To him, it seems that any perceived hiccup during a death penalty trial 
will likely result in that sentence being overturned, which means the entire process has to be run through again. Tanner thinks the Florida Supreme Court doesn't take into account enough the grief of the victims' families. It's hard on the family, these these multiple hearings coming back again and again. That's one of the problems I have always had with the death penalty. It seems like that it's a long road to finality. I know we, we must be careful to make sure everyone has their rights, but there was no doubt, there was virtually no doubt, these two young men killed Michelle and tried to kill the others. Uh, you can have whatever legal reasons you might, unless someone did not receive a fair trial. Uh, I believe the execution process takes much, much, much too long. John Henderson is now 49 years old and is housed at Dade Correctional Institution in South Florida. Anthony Farino is now 44 years old and is housed at Columbia Correctional in Lake City. Jeffrey Farina is now 42 years old and is housed at Hardy Correctional in Bowling Green. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I'll discuss the killing of an 11-year-old girl who was found floating in a lake in Mascot, Florida, located about 30 miles west of Orlando. The man convicted and sentenced to death for that crime was former mascot police officer James Duckett, who remains on death row. A CNN documentary was aired in 2014 that profiled the case. The show included interviews with a prosecuting attorney and the lead investigator in the case. Both of those men will be my special guests next week. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Mm-hmm.